Hey, how about them Red Sox? How about them? This time last year, they were like, Bleh. This year, they're doing much better. Oh, stop the wing. The Red Sox. We got a game at 1 o'clock, 1.10 today. I'm ready. I don't do the Bruins, so sorry about that. I know they're doing really well, but I'm a Red Sox person. I don't like hockey. Bruins are doing good, though, right? They're going to win. The Red Sox. Woohoo! Woohoo! You know, every morning when I get up, uh, if they've played the night before, I usually go to bed before the game's over. So the first thing I do is check my phone to see whether we won. And then I see who hit the most home runs. And, you know, my, my favorite player used to be Benintendi, but he's now on the Royals and they're not doing so good. So I haven't been following him too much anymore. But now it's like uh, J.D. Martinez and Renfro and Dahlbeck and Devers, of course, is always good. So, you know, I check to see how they did. Pretty awesome, right? And I check when the games are. And yesterday they had, like, opened the whole stadium so they could have full capacity. Maybe someday I'll get to the game. I don't know. Although watching it on TV is pretty good because then you see the up close. I don't know if I'd like to see it from the far. But, you know, I know a lot about the Red Sox. And I know when they play and who's on the team and what their stats are. And then I thought about it and I thought, if I met one of them on the street, would I actually even recognize them? Probably not, unless they were in their uniform. You know, if they were in their uniform, I'd say, oh, I know you. But they wouldn't know me at all. And all the following I do of them, they could care less about me. They're going to get paid whether I look on my phone in the morning and find out if they won or if I watch the game. Brian yells at me all the time. I go, 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 run fast. Oh, no, catch it, catch it, catch it. He's like, Mom, you know they can't hear you, right? I'm like, so? <laughs> you know, it's fun to get involved. But I'm more of a fan. I'm not really a follower. And Jesus wants us to be followers of him, not just a fan of his. Yeah, we know who he is. We, we might recognize him, maybe, if we saw him on the street. We know some facts and figures about him. We know, you know, some of the miracles that he did. We know that he went to the temple when he was 12. We know his mother's name was Mary. Uh, we know some things about, them, about him. But are we really following or are we just a fan? Say, yeah, Jesus, I'll, I'll, I'll open my Bible every day and, well, maybe I'll read it while I open it. Do we rush down? Do we rush to pray? Do we rush to, to read? Do we rush to come to church? Are we following Jesus? Or are we just a fan? In the scripture that we heard this morning, there were two people that came to Jesus. And both, he said to them both, follow me. And one said, well, mm, yeah. First let me go and bury my father. Well, we don't even know if the father was dead yet. Maybe the father was dying. Maybe he was still very young and alive. But that's not what he wants. He wants us to follow them. And the other one, he said, uh, I'll follow you. And he says, well, 
that's great, but you're going to be following for a long time because I don't have one place that I settle down. I have no home. I have no place to lay my head. My job is an ongoing thing, and you need to be prepared to follow me wherever. Not a comfortable life, but it's the best life. So are we fans of Jesus? Or are we followers? Are we willing to make that commitment to go wherever he leads? Or are we just content to know the facts? That's right. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have called us, that you have called each and every one of us to follow you. Help us not to give excuses for why we can't, or we're too busy, we slept late, we got up too early, we didn't have our coffee yet. Whatever reasons we try to put in the way of following you, take them away, Lord, so that we can be true followers, true disciples, ones that know you and you know us personally, not just the facts and the figures, but the personal relationship that you so desire. Build the desire in us so great that that's all that we seek for and help us to follow each step of the way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are a mystery to us, and yet you want to get close to us. This is amazing. Lord, please make your presence known to us today through the words of your scripture and the interpretation. In Jesus' name. A leper, a centurion, and a mother-in-law walked into a bar. That's it. That's the joke. <laughs> it's not even my joke. It's Paul's joke. Um, and it was almost the whole sermon. A leper, a centurion, and a mother-in-law walked into Jesus and got healed. That was going to be it because I didn't really know what else to say about that. Usually when I struggle to write a sermon, it's because I have an idea of what God wants to say to us in the passage, but I'm just struggling to get all my thoughts together and put them into some kind of words that maybe make a little bit of sense. But this week the struggle was different because on Tuesday, which is the day that I usually start my study for the sermons that I'm going to write, first of all, at 9 o'clock in the morning, I was visiting a hospice patient who I've been visiting about once a month for most of this past year. And... Um, she, you know, she was, she's on hospice, she was expected to die, but she did die this week, and that can be kind of a heavy space to be. And then, right after that, I went and visited Kathleen Bond, and we had a really lovely visit, um, and we went for a walk, and we got to spend some time with Fred, and it was a beautiful day, and then, at the end of the visit, I had to take her to the hospital. And we have other people in our congregation with varying degrees of health concerns. Um, some are somewhat serious. And it's Memorial Day weekend, and many of us are remembering loved ones who gave their lives in war. And if they didn't die, some of them came back with PTSD or injuries, and those have ongoing consequences. And it's true that, as Paul will tell you, none of us gets out of this alive. But... Why is that true? We worship a Savior who conquered death. And 
a Savior who, while he was here, did miracles like the ones that Mark read for us this morning. It's not to say that he won't do the miracles we're asking for now, but is he gonna? And probably every single person in this room has prayed for miracles in the past and hasn't gotten them. Why do we see so few of them? Some of you prefer a pastor who can preach with certainty and tell you all the answers and make us feel better. Um, I'm not that pastor. (laughs) And we have a God who's a trinity, which already by itself, that's kind of our starting point, and that we can't even wrap our minds around. So I think it's good to remember that there are going to be questions about faith that we will probably carry with us for our entire lives. And I could tell you, which what some pastors would tell you, with certainty, I could tell you, miracles are not for our time. God could do them, but he doesn't anymore. Now God wants to do whatever miracles he's going to do through us, through his people. And to some extent, that's correct. It wouldn't be totally wrong to tell you that. Um, That can be the way that God chooses to work most of the time. And for some of us to, the fact that we listened is maybe a miracle. (laughs) If God works through us and we listen to him, sometimes it's hard to hear God. And so the fact that we heard him and did what he told us to do, that might be a miracle. But The natural work of God through humans, while definitely the work of God, and on that level, still supernatural, is not by definition a miracle. And the fact is, that certain explanation doesn't fully explain things or doesn't fully answer our question because God didn't change all of a sudden after Jesus left. Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God to earth now, and he didn't take it with him again when he went back and ascended to be back at the right hand of the Father. He wasn't like, here, the kingdom of God is near, psych, and took it away until he comes back. It's not fully realized, but it's still here. Or I could take the other tack. I could tell you with certainty, if we just have enough faith Kathleen and the others we're praying for will be healed because faith is the key. Well, the Bible says that we need faith to see God work, for sure. And we're, when we follow the stories of Jesus in the Gospels, we see Jesus commending people for their faith all the time. He does it to the centurion here in particular. Um, And we see he goes to Nazareth at some point in his ministry, and he doesn't do very many miracles there because they don't have faith. So, faith is key. But, what about last Sunday I prayed for Frank Buffy's daughter and then was told after the service that she had already died. Also, how much is enough faith? Jesus says all we need is a mustard seed. How are we supposed to measure that? We have kids in this church who have needed or do need miracles for their mothers. 
Some of those kids did not receive that miracle, and one of them is still waiting. If that miracle doesn't happen, or because the other miracle didn't, is the responsibility on them? They didn't have enough faith? How can we tell them that? Is it really true that if we don't get what we ask for, our lack of faith is always the reason? No, it's not true. Because it is God who does the miracles. We're not the ones doing the miracles, and our faith, while a key component to them happening, is not actually the thing that does the miracles. If it were, then we would have to just put our faith in faith, but our faith is in Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who does the miracles, and he will not do it where there's no faith, but it isn't dependent on us. We live in a world where the kingdom of heaven is here now, but not yet fully. We have a God who has all authority in heaven and on earth, who already defeated Satan on the cross, and that's the point, the cross. We also have a God who works by process and relationship, not by formula. We cannot put God in a box. We can't figure out the formula to get what we want. Nowhere in the Bible do we see God solving the human condition by just fixing it. For example, Adam and Eve. God could have said, you guys, I told you not to eat from that tree. Okay, fine. Let's just, I'm going to like reset your brains and I'm going to make it so that you always do what I tell you to do and all done. He didn't do that. Um, I teach a class in the evenings for the pilgrimage and we were talking about in the in the Gospel of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes in, in chapter 2, but it's not until chapter 10 that the Christians figure out that Gentiles can also be Christians now. And one of the students in the class said, why didn't the Holy Spirit just like download that information? <laughs> and, and I said, because the Holy Spirit works by process, just like the Father worked by process, and... Just like the Son works by process, the whole Trinity is consistent with himself. And the Son, we already saw in the temptations in the wilderness, resisted the quick fix. Everything that Jesus did is about the process of relationship, giving humans freedom to choose, working within the messed up world that we basically messed up, um, whatever it takes, bringing the kingdom in a different way than the impose, I, I may fix it, but I'm going to impose the fix on you. God doesn't impose. Philip Yancey writes, this is about the temptation, Satan himself tempted the Son of God to change the rules and achieve his goals by a dazzling shortcut method. More than Jesus' character was at stake, Human history hung in the balance. As I look back on the three temptations, I see that Satan proposed an enticing improvement. He tempted Jesus toward the good parts of being human without the bad, to savor the taste of bread without being subject to the fixed rules of hunger and agriculture, to confront risk with no real danger, to enjoy fame and power without the prospect of painful rejection, in short, to wear a crown but not a cross. 
The temptation that Jesus resisted, many of us, his followers, still long for. Satan was offering Jesus the chance to be the thundering Messiah we think we want. We want anything but a suffering Messiah. And we might think, no, we don't want anything but a suffering Messiah. We're glad that Jesus went to the cross for our sins, suffered for our sins, so we don't have to. And he suffered for our sins, so we don't have to pay the eternal consequences of them. But having a suffering Messiah does not remove suffering from us. If the Messiah is traveling a path of suffering and he's calling us to follow him, Guess what that means? We're, we're not taking the easy way out. We're gonna, if we're gonna follow him, like Barb talked about, we are gonna go wherever he goes. And he didn't take an easy path. So it's pretty likely our path isn't gonna be the smoothest either. And I believe this is why Matthew frames today's stories the way that he does. I came to this text with so many questions. The first question, as I kind of implied, is what am I supposed to say about this passage in relation to our church's current context? But also, here's some other questions. Why did Jesus heal these three in particular? What do they have in common? And since... Matthew tells us that Jesus healed a bunch of other people, too, at the end of this story. Why did Matthew decide to tell us about these three grouped together in this way? And the reason why I asked myself this question, I looked it up. The other gospel writers also tell some, if not all, of these stories, but they don't group them together. So, this might be a good time to remind us all that the Bible writers... Um, don't, they're from a long time ago, and the ways that people communicated truth in their different eras, um, they were different eras from each other even, but way different from ours, the way they communicated truth was different than we do in our post-enlightenment sciences, the main way that we understand things um, kind of point of view, and so they weren't really all that concerned about telling stories in chronological order. Um, and the Gospels are like that a lot. They were more concerned about communicating underlying truth, um, not like this happened, then this happened, then this happened, but telling things in such a way that you could notice the message of Jesus better, the message of the kingdom better. And so... If Matthew grouped these three together as if they happened one after the other, but the other gospel writers didn't, it means that the order in which they happened in real life doesn't really matter, but something else does. So, why did Matthew group them together? And then also, why did he sandwich them the way that he did? This is basically a miracle sandwich. The miracles are the stuff in the middle, and the two stories, it, would it, it wouldn't be a sandwich um, other, if he had connected it with the two stories that follow this, which we're going to look at next week. So we have these three miracles, and then there's a little gap, and then there's 
two more miracles that are even more impressive that come afterwards. And if this were just a list of miracles to show us how amazing Jesus is, Matthew would have talked about the cost of following Jesus somewhere else, or he would have left it out entirely. So what in the world is really going on here? The longer I read this, the more questions I had. Here's what I'm talking about when I say a miracle sandwich. On one side of this sandwich, there are the either-or statements we looked at last week from the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, you're either going to travel the narrow way, which is hard to find. Is it even a way? It's inefficient. It's complicated. It could be painful. Or you're going to follow the broad way. It's easy. There are big crowds. Everybody's going that way. There might be some bad fruit, but it's, it's not that hard. We might be able to have some miracles without letting Jesus get too close. It's the good parts of being human without the bad. And he also talks about you're either going to build your house on the rock, which is more secure, but it's a little harder to build there, or you're going to have the nice beachfront property. That's the first piece of bread. And then the next piece of bread at the end is... A couple of people who Barb told us about who are wowed by the miracles that Jesus has just done and they're promising to follow Jesus everywhere until they find out he's not the kind of public speaker who has his own private jet and a penthouse suite but more or less is a homeless vagabond or at best a couch surfer. And they say, we'll follow you anywhere until they find out they have to put the kingdom family that he's building ahead of their earthly family that they were born into. The way of the kingdom of heaven is messy, inefficient, uncomfortable, and often from our vantage point, really unpredictable. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is completely consistent within himself, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one being is really hard to understand. And so it's the work that God does often is hard for us to predict and get our heads around. Matthew is really trying to help us not lose sight of the Messiah, the real Messiah who actually came, who nobody expected, who does things the hard way, and who is leading us down the narrow, hard-to-find way. Matthew doesn't want us to be distracted, as so many have been then, in that time period and now, by miracles for their own sake. He doesn't want us to be distracted by our desire for the good things about being human without the bad parts. He doesn't want us to be distracted by our desire for a thundering Messiah, and he doesn't even want us to be distracted by our desire for a formula so that we can figure out how to minimize our suffering and the suffering of the people around us, as good of an impulse as that might be. Something might give us that type of miracle or that type of easier life, but it isn't actually Jesus. And yet, there still are miracles, and they're right in the middle of the sandwich, or they're right in the center of the frame, and so we can't leave them out. We can't write them off. We can't say they didn't happen. Even if we leave this service with more questions than answers, even if we can't figure out a formula to acquire our own miracles, we cannot ignore the fact that Jesus did, did and still does, <laughs> miracles. 
So why is Matthew telling us about these three in this sandwich? First of all, these miracles testify to the power of Jesus. They show us that Jesus can heal anyone, no matter what their condition, how long they've had it. He can do it. They testify to the presence of the kingdom. The kingdom is a completely new world order that overturns the sin and the sickness and the suffering of the world that we live in. It's a new world order where God Almighty is king and where all that is broken in the world will one day be healed. But they don't testify to those things in the way that we, or the Jews at the time, which is why Matthew's writing this, remember, would think that they should testify. We, especially in our era, we think, you know, good PR is everything. You want to make sure that you do something good for the right person who has enough influence so they can tell everybody else and you can get the word out. And even in Jesus' time, there's another story in the Gospels where Jesus' brothers are like, you need to go to Jerusalem because that's, if you're trying to be up and coming here, like that's where you got to go. Jesus doesn't do it like that. These miracles are inefficient. They're done for individuals. They're private. Jesus hushes up the only one that's done for potentially for a Jewish male. Um, he tells them, don't tell anybody about this. And they're done for the wrong people. These people are not influencers. We have a leper who is probably Jewish, but he's contagious. So he has been outside of the community for as long as he's had this disease, which we don't know. Um, and he lives it from, he's from a culture that associates sickness like that with sin. So not only is he isolated from the community because he's contagious, but he's also isolated because they all think he's a sinner because he's contagious. That's the first person. Then Jesus heals a Roman centurion who is a member of the oppressors. Nobody likes the centurions, even though this might be the guy that um, did some favors for the Jews and they actually appreciated him. He still represents a group of people that are not appreciated in this society. And he healed a woman. And women at the time were necessary for the propagation of the community, but they were essentially powerless. They didn't really have any social currency. None of these people, interestingly, are permitted access to God. None of, in the sense that they're not permitted full entrance to the temple. So the temple, as we've talked about here before, had sort of courtyards and lev levels of getting closer and closer into the sanctuary. And the Holy of Holies, we know, only the high priest could go to once a year. But the main part of the temple where the worship really happens, the men were able to go to. But none of these three people could get into that part. The leper couldn't even set foot in the temple at all. The centurion could make it as far as the court of the Gentiles. And the woman could make it as far as the court of the women. But none of them can get in and worship with the community of God's people, which is basically just the Jewish men. So, God comes to them. 
Matthew says, when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. And then all of a sudden, along comes a guy who's guaranteed to bust up the crowd, a leper. He's contagious. He had to wear stuff so that people knew that he had leprosy, even if they couldn't see it physically. And he feels unworthy. He says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am. Yes, I'm willing. Be clean. This is, in a way, a sign of atonement. We talked in our atonement sermon series about how part of what the atonement is is about cleansing from the contagion of sin. And in a society where sin and sickness were really linked, Jesus is showing that he's cleansing this man from his impurities. And so then, having done that, he, does, he says, don't tell anybody else, but go to the priest and do what the law of Moses says to do to show that you have been cleansed. Here's something that I wondered while I was reading this. Even though that law had been built in since the time of Moses, I wonder if any priest had ever declared someone free of leprosy before. I don't know. Had anyone ever been healed from leprosy? Wouldn't this make great PR for the kingdom? Like, if the leper didn't go tell everybody, which he did, but some of the other gospel writers tell us that, um, if the leper didn't go tell everybody, would the priest not have? <laughs> like, you guys, this, I've never seen this before, but he was clean. But Jesus isn't interested in the PR that can come from this. He is more interested in restoring this individual to his community and his being clean. Next, we have a centurion. Jesus is entering Capernaum, his headquarters, and the centurion shows up. And the centurion, in a way, is pretty much the polar opposite of the leper. He has power. He has authority. He's a man, except he's a Gentile. His faith and his understanding of how authority works is extraordinary. And we're probably going to talk a little bit more about that next week. But part of why it's extraordinary, it's not just extraordinary because he knows that Jesus can heal his servant from a distance. It is also extraordinary because he is a Roman soldier with authority, as he says, and he went to a homeless Jewish rabbi for help in spite of the fact that he could have probably taken a decent amount of flack from his superiors. And that is astounding. Even Jesus is impressed. This man, seemingly powerful by the world's standards, humbles himself and takes a greater risk than Jesus' own people take by asking for this healing. And Jesus recognizes it. And the man's servant was healed at that very hour. And then we have Peter's mother-in-law. When Jesus came to Peter's house. Okay. Remember how last week we talked about how Jesus wants to know us? He doesn't just want us to know him, but he wants to know us. In the way that Matthew tells it, Jesus is getting closer and closer to the center. So, when Jesus came down from the mountain. When Jesus went into Capernaum, when Jesus came into Peter's house, this, too, is part of the cost of the gospel. Our suffering, loving, 
healing Messiah not only wants us to follow him, but he wants to get close to us. As Jesus interacts with three people on the margins of respectable Jewish society, at the same time, he is moving inward, getting closer to the heart. When Jesus came down from the mountain, he healed a leper. When Jesus entered Capernaum, he healed a centurion's servant. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he healed a member of the family. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. These people were literal people, and they were literally miraculously healed. And we know this because the Gospels aren't really into making up stuff. They record Jesus' parables, which are fiction that tell the truth. But other than that, they tell us the truth about true people. Um, And all of them tell us about these people, even if it's in different order. So we know that this really happened to real people. They were literally miraculously healed. Matthew's record shows us that Jesus acknowledges the outcast, the oppressor, and the woman. Interestingly, this is the first of the notable women after Mary that Jesus dignifies. Jesus acknowledges the insignificant. He doesn't just heal the people who count. He wants to fix the world for all who come to him in faith. And sometimes... That involves literal physical healing. We are right to boldly pray in faith. We should never stop doing that. We can trust that when our prayers are not answered the way that we hoped, though, God still heard them, and God is still healing and loving and furthering his kingdom in some way we may not yet be able to perceive. And that's not all. Because of the way that Matthew tells these stories, we can not only praise God for the works of physical healing that he did in these individuals' lives, at the same time, we can see how Jesus might bring individual spiritual healing to our own. When we walk the narrow way with Jesus, he leads us further and further into our own hearts and touches even or especially the parts we want to isolate or the parts we want to ignore or the parts that embarrass us. He acknowledges them, he speaks to them, he heals them. So, check the price. The road to the kingdom of heaven is narrow. It's hard to find. It's bumpy. Sometimes it's hard to find even when we're walking on it. It will, one way or another, cost us our lives. But it's also the only way to be healed. As Matthew reminds us, Isaiah prophesied, Jesus took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. It's worth the cost. Just ask the leper the centurion, and the mother-in-law. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your ways are not our ways, but we want them to be. We know that the way is narrow and sometimes complicated, and 
sometimes we wish we were, there were just easy answers and easy fixes. And yet we know that you love us and you have all authority in heaven and on earth. And you have already won the victory. And so we put our lives in your hands. We trust you. We will follow where you lead. Thank you, Lord. Amen.